We're going to be continuing through this letter that we've been studying through First Thessalonians. Uh, it's written to that young church in the middle of the first century in Thessalonica by Paul and his companions wrote this letter to them. And as we've been studying this letter, we've been thinking of this theme of double vision. Uh, and that's because this letter helps us as Christians to understand the two realities that we live in. Uh, we live in the very tangible and real here and now as followers of Jesus, yes. And Christians do that. They live in the very tangible here and now, knowing the eternal future that is secure for them that we've just been singing about. And so as we've defined it, this double vision is life in the present with confidence in the future. Life in the present with confidence in the future. And I wonder how you hear that phrase. Maybe that just sounds like a clever soundbite. Maybe it, it sounds... Fine, but it lacks a sense of groundedness. I mean, what does that actually mean then to live life in the present with confidence of the future? Well, graciously, as we turn to God's word today in, in chapter four of Thessalonians, we'll see that this life of double vision is intensely practical. Today, we reach this turning point of the letter at between chapters three and four. And Paul and his companions seem to shift gears a little bit. Uh, they, they now turn to write on some of the nitty-gritty day-to-day realities of what it means to live this life of double vision, this life very tangibly rooted in the present and with our confidence and our assurance and our hope in the future. And this is one of the many occasions where we read God's word, and although we know that much has changed over the centuries since it was written, it's clear as we read this word that human beings haven't changed that much. We, we struggle with the same issues that those who struggled, that those struggled, sorry, that those human beings struggled with 2,000 years ago. Indeed, all the way back to the fall in Genesis 3, humanity has struggled with the same kinds of sin uh, since day one. And so today, uh, we're going to read about sexual immorality. We're going to read about temptation, abuse. We're going to think about relationships within the church. We're going to hear about our attitude to work our witness in the world. And so these are timeless issues for God's people. And how good it is, therefore, that we have God's timeless, eternal, unchanging, rock-solid word to guide us through these timeless struggles that we may have. Um, But before we get into the meat of the passage, um, it is possible, and I've been very aware this week, that, that even hearing that list of topics has already sent some of our hearts and heads into a spin. Um. Maybe that's because of a reminder of, of personal feelings and mistakes in the past. And maybe that's brought, instantly brought to mind the suffering that we've endured at the hands of others as they have sinned against us. Maybe that's the hurt that's been caused by Christian brothers and sisters. And, and so I appreciate that none of us read or hear God's word in a vacuum. We all have thoughts and feelings and emotions that come to the fore as we engage in God's word. And that, that's good. He knows that. Um, but, but because of that and because of the variety of emotions, positive or negative, that may be in our heads and hearts right now, I just want to pause and pray. Uh, pray for God's help and pray for his voice. And so let, let's do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in your word you give us all we need for life and for godliness. And we thank you that by your eternal word, you you teach, you rebuke, you correct, you train in righteousness, equipping us then to serve you as you lead us on. And and so, Father, as, as we hear your word this morning, and therefore as we engage with 
these life circumstances which may be difficult for some of us. I thank you that we come before you, our good Father. I pray that we would be attentive to what you have to say to us this morning, that your voice would be clearest. Not, not our own thoughts, not our pain from the past, not the accusations of the enemy, but your voice would be clearest in our heads and hearts. And so may we hear your, your tender and healing voice in areas where we've been sinned against. May we hear your loving and correcting voice in areas where we have sinned or are sinning. May we heed your call to repentance where that is needed. May we answer your call to obedience where we are lacking. May we hear your offer of forgiveness and grace and empowering of your spirit. May we hear your hope and your joy. May we hear your good news call to live a good news life. And so speak, O Lord, and be glorified, we pray, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's read together uh, verses 1 to 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're actually not going to look at all of this section today. Uh, We're going to split it in half and look at the verses 9 to 12 next week. But I I think it is helpful to see it all as one section, as one flow of thought. And there's just, there's a lot to say. So let's, uh, let's read 1 Thessalonians 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to live a quiet, to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your own hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And so as we look at this section, these 12 verses as one block, um, we do seem to see this overarching theme of what it means to live a life to please God in the here and now with our confidence in the future. How do we please God? Verses 1 and 2 kind of set that up as the intro for this whole section. And so as I said, we are going to look at verses 1 to 8 this morning. But that doesn't mean that verses 9 to 12 and this whole section are just a, a list of unconnected bullet points. No, these are all the outworking of what it means to live a life of, that pleases the Lord all under that umbrella. And so it's not just a simple checklist of to-dos, but it's actually an outworking then of what this life devoted to Christ means in terms of our personal holiness, our love for one another, the way that we work and how we engage with the world around us. And so we'll look at all of those four things, but we're going to take two weeks to do it. And so the roast in the oven will be, will be safe today. Um, so I think as we think about these things, though, holy living 
loving others, quiet living, as we'll see next week, we we see that these are very real uh, issues for us, aren't they? There's such applicable teaching to every generation of Christians before us because every generation of Christians before us has shared the tension that we have of living in a world trying to please God in a world that doesn't want to please God. And so we find ourselves in tension. Not only are we double vision in terms of we live here knowing our eternal future, but yet in, in our life here, we do so under tension that we want to live in a way that honors God in a world that doesn't. And so often we find the difficulty and the tension of doing that. So what does it mean then to please God? How do we live this life to please God? So today we'll just look at verses 1 and 2 as one section, and then verses 3 to 8, living a holy life as a second section. So What does it mean to please God? Let's read again verses 1 and 2. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so we can see right from the outset here this switch, this pivot, this this kind of transition point in the whole letter. That everything in the first three chapters where Paul and his companions have been sharing their love for the Thessalonian church, the joy that the gospel fruit has been bringing there, and now on the basis of all of that, now here's some practical advice on how to live this life following Jesus in a world that brings tension sometimes. And so verse 1 continues, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. What an encouragement for the Thessalonian believers. They had heard Paul and his companions teaching on these subjects and many others, and they have lived out that teaching. The report that we heard back last week from Timothy, that Timothy brought back to Paul, is an encouraging one. This is a church alive, seeking to to follow Jesus with their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, their endurance inspired by hope, and they are living a life that pleases God. We instructed you how to live as, in fact, you are living. They're doing well. And then the verse, verse 1, ends with a plea. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. See, the, the Thessalonians here have been living in a way that pleases the Lord, yet there's continual p- potential for more and more. There's room to grow. There's room to deepen. There's room to mature. And, and the reality of the Christian life is there always is that room. There is always more and more for us to be living in a way to please the Lord. If you haven't noticed yet, we're not perfect yet. Now, now let's be sure we understand this. That, that, so we have room to grow, room to mature, room to develop. But, but that doesn't mean that this is a checklist of, of entrance criteria into the people of God. So, so this isn't about reaching a stage of, of uh, outward obedience that warrants then and grants us access to the Father. No, that has been secured by Christ. And this life that we then live to please him is a result of all that he has done for us. And so, spiritually speaking, for those who have committed their lives to Jesus, trusted in his salvation, accepted his offer of forgiveness and his sacrifice in our place to take the penalty of sin, for those of us in Christ... God proclaims over us that we are holy. Spiritually speaking, in his sight, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
And that's because Christ's sin has paid for all, or Christ's sacrifice, sorry, has paid for all sin, past, present, and future for those who trust in him. Yet, as we seek to live for him, we are not sinless yet. We still struggle, we still strive on the way to glory. And so there's always room. There's always more and more. And so we live, this is another tension that we live in. That God sees us as holy and calls us to be holy. Paul introduces his letter to the Corinthian church in this way, in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Can you see the two realities at play? You are sanctified in Christ. Therefore, you are called to be his holy people. Live out his holiness in your life. We are undoubtedly justified by Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, we are to live who we are. James Grant explains this really helpfully in his commentary. We have been called, regenerated, forgiven, and adopted. That is who we are in Christ. That is the victory that Christ has won for us. The biblical ethic then, James Grant goes on to say, is that we are now called to live like that. In other words, we are called to become what we already are in Christ. We are holy, therefore live as God's holy people. And as we'll see later on as we come towards the end of our time in these verses, that this, this type of holy life is is empowered by and granted by God himself. See, he, he works in us to transform us step by step into greater holiness, step by step into greater obedience, and consequently step by step into greater joy. That's why this is good news that the Thessalonians are asked and urged more and more to live a life that pleases God because the life that pleases God is his full life. It is his best way. And so it is the path to joy, eternal joy. Therefore, live like it more and more and more and keep on growing until he comes again or calls you home. There's always room for growth. And rather than that being a source of frustration for us to think that, oh, this is just too hard, that is a, a source of opportunity and wonder as we think there is more that God has for us to step into as he works in our lives. But, but I, I understand that, it, that sometimes we do walk this path with Jesus with that sense of frustration because I think some of us assume that we should be further on in our spiritual maturity than we currently are. Maybe we think that, goodness, by the time I was, insert age or life stage here, by the time I was, I, I would be reading my Bible more regularly. I would be knowing and, and experiencing the presence of God more fully. I would be, I would be, and, and we, we assume that we should have been further on. And so some of us walk this line of, with Jesus with frustration. And so we want to jump quickly, immediately, from where we are now to where we want to be in our spiritual walk. We're looking for that silver bullet of a, of a spiritual discipline that will guarantee growth. That Bible reading plan that will assure... And that just doesn't exist. God is clear in his word, and I've been helped recently by a new book that I started reading, listening to this week, that, that actually, in terms of spiritual growth and discipleship, the language used in scripture is much slower than we would use or hope for. 
the most common verb used, with a, used in terms of a relationship with God is to walk. Walking with God. Not hurried. Not rushing. Not immediate. But walking with God. Doesn't it remind us of that language in John 15 where Jesus talks about those who abide in him? In a fast-paced, immediate microwave world, we want quick answers, quick results, quick spiritual growth. The only way, Scripture is clear, the only way to grow spiritually is to spend time with God. And there is no quick fix to that, unfortunately. As we think about the fruit of the Spirit, well, it, it takes time in that word picture. It takes time for fruit to grow. It, it can't be rushed. We must invest in the nourishing presence of God as we seek to grow into the more and more we have for him. And, and the point is, and, and perhaps you feel like I'm laboring this point just to avoid getting to verse 3. I promise I'm not. Because... Th- If we rush too quickly to verse 3, we miss the importance that verse 3 to 8 and the holy life that we're called to is flowing from a relationship with Jesus. This is not a list of legalistic do's and don'ts. Of course, please hear me, of course there is action to take. Of course there is discipline to be embodied. Of course there are marks of a Christian growth that we will see. But it is a result of God's grace. It is a pursuing of God's love. And so it's about investing in a relationship more and more because that relationship with our Heavenly Father is the most satisfying relationship there is. He is the most generous and loving Father there is and he wants to guide us into the fullest life that there is. And there's no quick way to get there. We simply and joyfully walk with him. So let's jump to verse 3 to 8 and see actually that this life of pleasing God then works its way out in very tangible lifestyle ways and and will be evidenced by our attitudes and our lives. Let's read again verse 3 to 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we have told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his spirit. And in many ways, these verses speak directly for themselves. And there's certainly words that demand our attention and our action. But within this section, I think we see at least three points. Um, And this will frame the the rest of our time together. We see that, that to live a life that pleases God, we need to understand God's will, God's call, and God's gift. As we seek to live this holy life, we need to understand God's will, God's call, and God's gift. Firstly, verse four, God's, or verse three, sorry, God's will. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. I wonder how many of us have spent hours, if not weeks of our lives, wrestling with the question of God's will. What is God's will for my life? And and very often that is specific, I understand that. Should I take this job or not? Should I date this person or not? Should we move there or not? 
And so I understand that. I I get it. What is God's will for my life? It's an important question. It is a good question. It is right that we bring those questions to God and, and seek to hear his leading of us in them. Absolutely it is. But I wonder how many of us have got ourselves tied up in knots trying to discern the will of God when actually the options are both good, plausible, acceptable to the Father. It's very clear to know God's will when one of those options is sinful. That is no but when, when the options before us are, are equally good, equally, um, equally commended in Scripture, you know, there is no moral right or wrong. Those are the difficult questions that we have. And, and I get it. I'm a questioner too. I'm, I'm a doubter too. My biggest fear is, what if I get it wrong? Uh, and so I know that. But the Bible makes it clear that the overarching will of God for your life in this verse is that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, sanctification is very closely linked with holiness. It's it's that idea of being separate, being different, set apart. Uh, And so God's will for his people is that they grow in their life of holiness. They grow in holiness. And one specific area in which God longs us to pursue holiness is shown in this passage as it continues, and it's our understanding and our practice of sex, his gift of sex. Verse 4 to 5 continue, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagan. Sorry, let me go back to verse 3. That you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. God's will is that we avoid sexual immorality. And isn't it interesting that phrase here, avoid sexual immorality the esv has abstained from sexual immorality i find that strangely encouraging because it suggests to me that god knows the world we live in will give us plenty of opportunity to engage in sexual immorality and his call his will for us is to avoid to be set apart from to abstain from to learn to control their own body in a way that is honorable and holy that's, that's what living a life of pleasing God in this area looks like. It is a life of self-control. And the reality is it has to be, it must be, because temptation to walk into sexual immorality is rife. Although being, be encouraged, as a side note, be encouraged that self-control is one of the, one of the, a part of the gift or part of the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. And so as God works in our lives, the temptation to be drawn to sin is easier to reject, easier to avoid, easier to abstain from because God is at work and he produces self-control in our lives. So Christians should avoid sexual immorality, but what is sexual immorality? What does that mean? That that sounds a bit vague, a bit too general. I actually think the general nature of that term is exactly the point. The, the, The phrase encompasses sexual activity, which is outside of God's design, for that good gift, God's design for sex, which is within the lifelong commitment of heterosexual marriage. Anything outside of that, I believe the Bible calls sexual immorality. So it's God's will that we know the joy of experiencing that gift within the boundaries he made for it. Because he knows, like all of his good gifts that he has given to to us as his world, All of his good gifts have boundaries. And when we step outside and misuse those gifts outside of the boundaries, then they can cause harm. 
and it's important that we frame it in that language. I'm, I'm not wanting to be flowery about it. I just think it's good that we get a right understanding that the problem that we often view, that, that the problem with sexual immorality is sex itself. No, sex is a good gift that God has given to his creation. Adam and Eve enjoyed it before the fall. This was a good thing. And so Christians have no need to be anti-sex as itself when it is used as God and and expressed as God intended it. However, don't we all know, and some of us with devastating reality, the pain that can come when that gift is misused. That gift is, is expressed outside of its intended boundaries. And so whether it is um, the, the impact of abuse or what I've called here the grenade of adultery within a marriage, whether it is the secrecy or the change of attitudes that comes through use of pornography or, or a million other things that it could be, when the good gift of God is misused or taken out of its the safety and the, the joyous boundaries that he has given, and it can cause devastating harm. And so we must avoid it as his people. That's why I was so keen to pray earlier, um, as I did, because I know that many of us are carrying pain and hurt that, that the people around us may have no clue about. But this text shows us that God knows what it's like to live in this world. He knows that some people will misuse his gift. He knows that some of his people will suffer at the hands of others. And so he knows your pain. And maybe you need to know that he knows, that he sees your pain. And as his child, he offers healing and grace and renewal and forgiveness. He is a good father. And equally, there may well be some here this morning engaged in something that might fall under that banner of sexual immorality. And my plea with you is to recognize God's convicting words from these texts, this text and others. Turn from it. Avoid it. Abstain from it. Repent of it. Know that his will for you is not that. But in its place, in place of that sin, when you turn to him, he offers grace, repentance, strength to those who call on him. And so if it would be helpful, talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to a fellow disciple of Jesus. Not because we can fix it for you. Only Jesus can. But sometimes in the secrecy of sin, it can thrive. And God has given us one another as one way in which we can know his help and his strength in those things. So don't struggle. Don't suffer alone. As for other matters, brothers and sisters this chapter starts with let's encourage one another help one another in a world totally fascinated by sex let's encourage one another and help one another to avoid sexual immorality and to understand and to celebrate the good gift that god has given us so god's will is that we are sanctified and one area of life where that will be evident is in our avoidance of of sexual immorality And that means that our teaching and our attitudes and our values about sex will put us at odds with the messaging that we hear from the world around us. We will be different. We will be set apart. And that's how it should be. Notice in verse 5. So in verse 4, it's you should live like this in a self-controlled way. And then verse 5, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. 
And let's not miss the important phrase at the end of that verse. It's the passionate, the, 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 those who live in passionate lust, those pagans who live in passionate lust because they do not know God. Knowing God is the difference. Knowing his way is the difference. Knowing him as our good father who has given this good gift with wonderful boundaries around it, that, that, that's what makes a difference. That's how Christians can avoid sexual immorality. It's, it's not just on the basis of good decision making or software protection on your devices. Those things are wonderful tools. But the way and the reason we can avoid sexual immorality is because we know God. We know him to be better. We know his life to be better. We know his ways to be better. We know that we are living here surrounded by temptation, but we are at home there with him. And so we know Therefore, we can avoid and encourage one another to do so. And so that's what it means to live a life in this area. And there's many more passages in Scripture that help us understand uh, God's gift of sex and how it can be used well um, and how we should think about it, how we should explain it, how we should um, understand the world that we live in. But that's one of the ways in which we can please him, that we are to please the Lord And it is his will that we are sanctified. So God's will is that we are sanctified. And that sanctified life is one that he has called us to. God's will is that we're sanctified in verse 3. And then in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. See, we mentioned this already, but it bears repeating. That we are made holy by Christ. And now that we are in him, we're called to be holy. To repeat James Grant's quote from earlier, we're called to become what we already are in Christ. So we are holy, therefore live like it. And, and of course, but that means we will battle against the sinful desires that, seek to, that we continue to seek to put to death. But that's because the sin that is, we're battling against is trying to take hold of, of a control that we have taken away from it. So it's trying to take back control that's been ripped from its grasp. Look at how Paul describes this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And so as Christ's people were free from sin, free from sin's mastery over us, And we are slaves then to righteousness. That's who we are in Christ. That's who God has called us to be. He calls us and views us as holy. So live that holy life. That's his will for us. That's his call upon us. And how good it is that he then gives us his wonderful gift. I'm so grateful that he doesn't just give us his will and call us to do it and then leave us to figure it out. No, look at how verse 8 finishes. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God gifts us with his Spirit. And as we said a moment ago, it's his Spirit at work within us that produces fruit, and part of that fruit is self-control. And so it's his work within us which transforms our affections. It it transforms our desires. It's his work within us which weakens the appeal of sin and that that grows our longing for holiness. On our own, we can't conjure that up. That is God's work within us. 
And so if I could link these three things together like this, it is God's gift of the Spirit that empowers our ability to live to God's call, thereby walking in God's will. That's how I see the three things linking together. God gifts us by his Spirit. Therefore, it is possible for us to live up to the call, not to be impure, but to live a holy life. And it's God's will that we are sanctified. That holy life is that, we are, is, is that sanctified life. And so, yes, of course, there, there are decisions that need to be made. There is action that needs to be taken. There are godly attitudes that, that need to be learned. As we see there from verse 4, each one of you should learn to control your own body. Of course, there, there is work that needs to be done and intentionality on our part. We are very active participants in the life that pleases God. But it is only possible for us to do any of that because God himself gifts us with his spirit to empower us with the strength, the love, the grace, the joy, the eternal focus. All of that is only possible because of God's work in us. Just look at what God said through one of the Old Testament prophets in Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. How good and gracious he is. He puts a new heart in us which moves us to long to follow and obey him. So he gifts us with the source of power that we need to follow his call and live in his will. And doing so will be a life of holiness. It will be a life of sanctification. It will be a life that pleases him. And it's going to be countercultural. Yes, it will mean some discipline and some self-control on our part. Absolutely. But ultimately, God has given us this instruction because it is his best way. It is his way to know the smile of his face. Maybe we even need to pause and consider the fact that we can please God. We, the way we live, can please the almighty, omniscient, omnipotent God. What a marvelous act of his grace. And so it is his will for his people. It is the call he makes to us. It is the life he equips to live a life that pleases him, to live a life of sanctification, to live a life of holiness. And in this one example, to live a life that avoids sexual immorality. And we keep doing all of that more and more and more and more because grace and mercy are new every morning. So when we mess up, which we will, we will stumble and fall grace abounds when we come to him in forgiveness and so as we finish let's let's rejoice in the reality that that our lives in the here and now can please god and we can do that because of the confidence we have in the life to come we can do that because god has made us holy and thereby welcoming us into the eternity with him and therefore, he empowers us to live a life in the here and now that is holy, that is sanctified, and therefore might be very different looking to those that we rub shoulders with. But it is life in the very tangible present that brings a smile to the face of our Father. And may he help us more and more to live in such a way. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you that you continue to teach and shape and mold us regardless of how long we've been walking with you. You continue to to be at work and transforming us more and more into the likeness of your son. And we pray indeed, Father, for that more and more. We pray that we would give more and more of ourselves to you. Therefore, you can have more and more fruit in our lives. I thank you, Father, that because of Jesus Christ, because of his death that we'll remember in a second around the table, because of all that he has accomplished and only because of what he has accomplished, we can be We can be free from the mastery of sin. We can be justified in Christ. We can be presented before you as holy and blameless. What a mystery this is to us, Father. But yet how grateful we are for your grace and your forgiveness, for the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And therefore, Father, we pray that you would indeed help us Each one of us who knows you as our Lord and Savior, help us to grow into this more and more, into this life that pleases you. And particularly in this area of sexual immorality, Father, we pray that you would give us the strength we need to avoid it. You would give us the the joy of your truth, and we would celebrate that joy. And we would do so, Father, in a way uh, that honors you, that that yes, we'll look different to the world around us. But we thank you that you have given us your word to show us what it means to live a life that pleases you, and we pray that you'd help us to do it. Lord, we recognize that that in this very, um, what might be an emotive topic for many of us, Father, thank you that your grace comes over us like a balm, and you heal broken hearts, and you want to restore those who have been crushed. And so thank you, Father, for your gracious hand upon us. And Lord, we pray for, for those of us who, who know that you have been speaking to our hearts about things in our lives that do not please you. God, would you give us all the strength that we need to, to lay those things down before you, repent of them, turn from them, and live a life that, that pleases you. Thank you, Father, that your word promises that when we are tempted, you will never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, and you will always provide a way out for us in the moment of temptation. So help us, God, to know that, to recognize it, and to run toward it. So we thank you, God, for your grace and your goodness and your truth. We pray that you would help us to be an encouragement to one another as we seek to live a life that pleases you. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.